it's really not a series, but it is a series of messages uh, that are kind of disconnected, but still serve the same purpose. When I was a Methodist, uh, I was introduced to what they call the Advent season. Are you all familiar with Advent? A lot of you have those traditional backgrounds. Uh, Raised Baptist, I didn't know what that was. And so once I started getting into it and studying and figuring out what Advent is, and it's just a fancy word for the same Christmas season that we have. But one of the neat things they did was they had what they would have, an Advent wreath. They would have four four candles, three of them purple, one of them pink traditionally, and with a big Christ candle in the middle. And then each week we would have a reading and a theme and, and then we would light that candle uh, according to the week of the, the season, right? I thought it would be interesting to do a, uh, four messages based on those four candles. Not that we're going to have our own uh, wreath here or, or candles, but more just to kind of set a, a, a pattern or a, a structure for us. And so here's our four-week goal. This is our, our I'm not going to call it a series, but these are four-week messages. Today, we're going to be talking about hope. Next week, we're going to talk about peace. The week after that, we're going to talk about love. And on the Sunday, right before Christmas, we're going to focus on the the time of joy. So that's our four-week structure, so you know where we're headed from this time forward. And so, thankfully, Jane read this passage, which... um, may not seem like much at first, but I want to try to dissect it if I could to give us some meat to hang on to that structure. And in verse 13, the writer writes something that we probably don't pay a lot of attention to. It says that when God made his promise, he swore by himself, which sealed the promise. His oath the promise, uh, his oath made the promise legally binding. The promise is, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. My question is this, where do you put your hope? I've, I've known two individuals or I've been told about two individuals connected to the church family or to my family in the last week that have committed suicide. And my, my question is, why? That's what everybody asks. Why? Why would they do this? Why, why would this come about? And, and having studied this topic through uh, a master's program and studying the topic on an ongoing basis in relation to my own clients and my own people that I love and, and try to help and encourage, I, I still ask the question, Why? Uh, I've read a lot of articles recently that that indicate basically the same thing, that the reason people get to that point where they would take their own life is because they had no hope. They had no hope that tomorrow was going to get any better than today. Um, I can't imagine going through life without hope. Now, we have to remember that there is an enemy, there is a devil loose, And his job is to contradict everything that the scriptures tell us. Where we find hope in scripture, the devil tells us there is no basis for hope. This book is just a collection of writings. It's outdated. There's no power to it. And so we have to ascribe a certain amount of faith to this book and to the words that it speaks so that we can have this hope. 
Without this book, without God, without a, a, a death on the cross by Jesus, we wouldn't have no hope ourselves. But the fact is, we do have hope. Regardless of how ugly your circumstances can be today, we have hope that tomorrow could be better. And so that helps us to hold on just a little bit longer with this anticipation or expectation that tomorrow is actually going to be a little bit better. Now, I told you, uh, I know I've told you before uh, that this topic really became more important to me when I was doing addiction counseling with adults at the Triangle Center in uh, Springfield. Uh, we were talking with the, with the clients um, who were all addicted, mostly to heroin, many of them to cocaine, a lot of them to alcohol as a, a secondary comorbidity, uh, is what we called it. But these were gentlemen that were at the end of the road. They were end of the rope, rather. They were at the end of the road, too. But, but they just had nowhere else to go. And so when we would talk about this concept of faith and hope, they were asking questions that I was not prepared to wrestle with. But in talking to them, we, 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 I, I kind of led them this way. I believe it was God leading me to say this to them. And I said, well, you know, faith is very important. Faith takes you to a certain level in your life, to a certain place in your life. And that faith will sustain you. That faith is your strength. It's your salvation. That faith is everything. And, and regardless of how much faith you have, you have something there. And your faith will take you further, and it can be developed. It can be strengthened. Your faith will take you further than you've ever gone before if you allow it to. And then where your faith runs out, that's where hope begins. Hope begins where your faith stops. Because nobody has faith in everything or in every situation. So we have this concept of hope. The hope, hope is very important. As I was studying through some of the definitions, um, this all came confirmed to me, what I told these gentlemen years ago. Merriam-Webster, which is, of course, not a Christian a document defines hope as to cherish a desire with anticipation or to want something to be true or to be true or, or to happen. Okay, so it, it starts in Merriam-Webster's as a cherished desire or something that I want. So my desires and my wants are what create hope in my life. What I would like to see happen, that's my hope. And I read that, and I start pondering that, and I think, is it no surprise that our world has no hope? If they're only basing their hope on their innermost desire and their innermost wants. You know, I'll tell you, just being honest, keeping it real. I love my Minnesota Vikings. I don't have a lot of faith in them that they're going to win today against New England. I don't have a lot of faith. I hope that they're going to win today. That's the distinction. There are times when I have gone into games like last year against Philadelphia in the NFC Championship, and I have had faith my team is going to win. It's our destiny year. It's going to happen. We're going to beat Philadelphia, and then we go and get shellacked. My faith was turned upside down in that moment. I wanted it, 
I desired it, but based on the evidence that I had seen, it was good for me to expect that result. And even still, it fell through. Today, I hope that they went. I don't see the evidence to make me any more secure in that than just hoping. But it would be sweet. In comparison, the Oxford Study Companion to the Bible, which is a Christian document, it it defines hope as this. It's an attitude toward the future, an assurance that God's promises will be kept, a confidence that what is bad will pass, and that what is good will be preserved. Do you see the difference? Uh, Merriam-Webster says that it's based on my desires and my wants and with my anticipation that it's going to come to, to pass. But in the Oxford study, it is an attitude that I know God's promises are true and valid and they will be returned and they will be fulfilled. That, that God is not capable of crumbling at the job. He's not going to quit his job. He's not going to say, you know what? I think it's a good time for retirement. God's not going to do that. We can trust in him. We can put our hope in him. And what he's telling us is that we can put our hope in his promises. And this hope that we put in his promises is not some fluid type of attitude or behavior. It's concrete. Why is it concrete? Well, let's go back to the Hebrew 6 a minute. It says that when God made his promise to Abraham, this is all based on a promise. When God promised Abraham that he was going to have an offspring and a multitude of descendants, this was back in Genesis 11, Genesis 15, he confirmed this promise to Abraham and they made it a covenant. But it says that since there was no one greater for him to swear by, He swore by himself. So in in essence, what you do when you make a promise, you're putting yourself on the line. You're putting your reputation on the line. You're putting your trustworthiness on the line. But the problem with that is, is that we're flawed humans. We're not capable of 100% perfection. I have been known to let people down from time to time. I try to minimize that to the best of my ability and with God's help, Hopefully, I'm getting better at that. But the fact is, I'm still flawed, and so are you. And so if your spouse or your children put their hope in you, when they're little bitty, they might think that that's gospel, you know, that that there's no way you'll ever let them down or renege on a promise, right? But as they grow up, they find, you know what? My parent isn't perfect. My, My parent isn't a superhero. They do sometimes fall on their faces, And I still love them anyway. And so that's very important to to understand is that humans do not have the capacity to completely fulfill every promise. I mean, they can try, but they're not going to be 100% accurate all the time. And not just with their promises, but with their actions, with, with the things they do, the things they say. Sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we fall down and break a bone. Sometimes we need surgery to repair our, our, our wounded bodies. But God, 
because there wasn't a greater name in heaven by which he needed to swear by, he decided to swear by his own name. Remember, God is holy, righteous, perfect. He's never failed. He's never relented. He's never relinquished. He's never faltered. He has always been constantly the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. So if you want to put your hope and your trust in someone that is not going to dissipate when the wind blows, put your hope in God. That's a good start. That's wisdom. Put your hope in Christ, who is the child of God, who worked together as a team to bring about our redemption. We'll get more on that in a minute. In the Hebrew language, there's two words, the kwa'a, which means it's a verb, and the tikwa, which means a noun. And both of them together mean this, to twist or to create a cord or a rope, referring to the tension in time of hoping or the rope to which one clings when in need of hope. Now, basically, let me re say it a little bit easier. It's basically emphasizing a rope or a cord that connects from now to the distant point in future when your promise is fulfilled. This Hebrew, these two Hebrew words will combine uh, those two events or that event in the future to the, where we are today. And it's like a lifeline. It's a support. He goes on to write, the root of both words simply means to wait. Now, in the Greek, there's only one word that they use. Uh, the, the verb is elpis, and the noun is elpizane, which is the same, same basic word, just with a little fancier ending. Both of them translate as hope, okay? Hope, though, in the Greek, is an inner sense of confidence in God, which produces peace a serenity in us. So when we put our hope in God, we get peace back. Immediately we get peace because we know he's in charge. He's going to work out something good in our circumstance. We know this. This is not fluid. We're not questioning. We're not, you know, flipping about it. We're like, oh, I know God's going to do it. He said he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He promised. God is not capable of lying or reneging on a contract. He is going to fulfill this. And so I have peace now. If you don't have peace in your life, by the way, the insinuation is this, is that you haven't put your hope in Christ. You haven't put your hope and your trust in the Father. That's basically the implication. So once we have this peace, and that can be in spite of the most troublesome situations that you could be in today, to still have peace that he's going to get you through it. Whatever strengthens faith will also increase your hope. God's promises form the basis for the content of hope. All of this is still in the Greek uh, understanding of the definition. God's promises form the basis for the content of our hope. Hope is dependent upon the confidence that God will provide in four areas of your life. The first one, he will provide the necessities of life, food, water, and land, oddly enough. Land is a lot more significant in the Old Testament than it is today, but it's still significant. Land shows God's, not just his promise, but his approval and his, uh, his calling for you to be a steward of what he's entrusted to you. That's, that's a whole different sermon. The second thing is, is that God has promised 
or he gives you hope that he will protect you from danger, both as a community of believers or a community outside the, the church and as individuals that God will protect. Now, there will be quickly, there will be people who say, well, God doesn't protect because I, this happened to me and this happened to my friend and this happened to my kids. Um, believe me, he's still protecting you. If you go back into Isaiah, an interesting passage, I'm reading this book again by Richard Sibbs, uh, if you ever want a good read. He was a Puritan in the 1600s. It's called the smoking, or the, the bruised reed. It's based on a verse out of Isaiah, the bruised reed and the smoking flax. And he says this, God allows us to be bruised for a purpose, but he never allows us to be completely broken. In other words, God may let the devil attack you and inflict you and bring you to your knees, but he will never allow the devil to take your life because of his protection. He will use what the devil inflicts to work out some good at a later time, but it's with a purpose in mind. His protection is certainly upon us. We just don't always give him credit for such. The third thing is, is that, that he, we, we give him hope and we trust in him because of justice, that the good will be rewarded and the wicked will be restrained and eventually disciplined. And four, for community. That is where we have the assurance that God will never abandon his children. And that they will live in peace and love with other human beings. We have this hope because of God and because of his promises. So this is, a, this is really important stuff. But basically, so what I, what I told those guys in, in addiction counseling was not wrong. The definitions all support it. That our faith will take us so far as our developed faith will allow us to go. But when our faith ends, which is sometime in the future, that's when our hope takes over and takes at the distance. All right? So we have hope now in the circumstances and in the relationship we have with God and the promises he's given us. We have hope in the now. But when it comes down the road, we have to put our hope in it. Because we may not see it come. We might lose our minds before then. We might lose focus by then. We might get distracted. But we have hope that in the end, it's going to work out the way God had promised. So these, these are some words that I put together. And you, don't, you, know, you don't have to quote me. It's not like anything that's been published, all right? But these are my words. The word hope may appear as pithy on your paper, but powerful in practice. So the question is not merely a conversation starter. It is the basis for our faith and the foundation for our joy and peace. I encourage you to, to place your hope in the promises of God who swears by his own name instead of the promises of sinful man who is content with just swearing, whose sins make him weak and fallible and his death sentence makes his promises corruptible. In other words, in comparison, do I put my hope in Christ, in, in the Father, or do I put my hope in what my spouse has told me or my, my boss has told me or anybody else fill in the blank? But what I find is that there's a lot of people that put their hope elsewhere. To me, I think, well, who could put their hope anywhere else other than God? Well, I see it every day. There's a lot of people that put their hope in themselves, either because they have a lot of money or they're intelligent, 
or because of whatever else has happened in their life, they think more highly of themselves than they do of God himself. If you think about it, I think it was Matthew, I want to say 16, where the rich man came to Jesus and he said, teacher, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? What must good thing must I do? Jesus is like, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me, and then we'll talk about it. He said, I can't do that. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. But you see, it's very probable that rich people get this attitude, I don't need anybody's help. I can do it myself. I can get there on my own agenda, my own you know, I can, I can invent my own God, my own path to heaven. I can get there myself. I don't need the church. It's crazy. There are people who believe that family can get them there. I remember when I was a kid, I used to think that because of the faith of my mom and my dad, that I would automatically be entered into the heaven. And my mom uh, rudely misinformed or mis, uh, corrected my misinformed attitude. And she said, oh, honey, you are so wrong. I can just barely get myself in there by God's good grace. You're going to have to find his good grace on your own time because mine's not significant for yours or sufficient for yours. And I said, oh, great. Now i got to figure out how to do this. Uh, but we do that sometimes. If, if things go bad in your, in your house, you know, let's say you're in a snowstorm, you lose your power, where do you go first? Some would say, well, I call the electrical company. But how many of us go first to God? If he is the source of your hope, why would you go anywhere else but to God first? Your child's in a car wreck. They're hundreds of miles away. You don't know what to do. Uh, So you get in your car and you just go without thinking, without doing anything. But why didn't you pray first? Because, you know, when your kid's in an accident, isn't time of the essence? If you wait even five minutes, is it possible that five minutes could be too long? So why would you not go to the source of hope right off the bat? You lose a job, you call somebody for help, you call somebody for a favor. Why wouldn't you just go straight to God? Another place where people find hope is with their bad theology. There's a lot of people in this category, they put their hope in bad theology. For example, universalism. Everybody's going to heaven because God's a God of love. He would never let anybody perish and go to hell. God would not do that. He doesn't function that way. Well, read the book. He does work that way. He gives you a choice. He gives you an option. If you pick him, great, joy. But if you don't want to live for him, you want to go the other direction, then go your way. Good luck to you. God's not going to make anybody go to heaven that doesn't want to be there. So God's not going to put a blanket of grace over a whole nation of people and say, you know what, you'll do whatever you want. It's good enough for me. I'll bring you home when you die. God doesn't play that game. So bad theology may give you a false sense of hope. Like I said with the rich man, it's also possible that you might put your hope in your deeds or your works. Some people are works righteous. They do so much around the church. They serve in so many capacities. They feed people. They pat people on the back. They send them money when they can. They clean. They decorate. They cook. You know, they do all this stuff thinking that that's going to get them into heaven. And I'm just going to tell you that you're going to be sadly, sadly uh, informed when you get there. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9 comes to mind. For it is by grace that you're saved through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. If you could get there by your own achievements, then you could boast about it. And you say, look what I did. I'm the only one in the world who's ever made it to heaven without grace. I did it by my agenda. Not going to happen. And believe it or not, there's a lot of people in this world that put their hope in the government. Yeah. Those yahoos. Those jokers. But there are people, when they lose their job, they go and they file for unemployment. That's your right to do that. I'm not knocking that. But there's some people that will just live off of that. There are a lot of people that just want to have disability. So they will do whatever it takes to get a disability so that they can have a a guaranteed check over a period of time. There's a lot of us putting our hope in the government that when we retire, we're going to get our retirement. But that may be sadly taken from us. You can't put yourself in government because that's just a network of broken people who are fallible. So what the scriptures are teaching us and reminding us of this Christmas season is that Christ is our hope and that Christ is, because he's our hope, that is our celebration. That is the object of our celebration then we have to to figure out, okay, what are the promises of God through Christ that we can cling our hope to, that we can be concrete about? And let me just say before, and I wrote down several of these, but these these are all viable. These are all important. I didn't write down all of them. But let me just tell you, if you don't know the Bible, you don't have hope in the promises of God. You have to know what the promises are, and you have to meditate on them. You have to remind yourself of them. You have to continually let them fall from your lips to remind you that these promises are from God, that they're dependable, they're reliable, and they are life-sustaining. You have to keep reminding yourself of the promises of God. The one I always cling to, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I remember that one all the time. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, never leave you nor forsake you. It's all through the scriptures, many references, but I always remember that whenever I'm at the bottom of the rope and I'm about out of patience and I don't know where else to go, I remember that verse. It was, uh, it was pounded into my head and now I try to pound it into the heads of others. It's all give. It's all plus. So here are some promises I want you to be cognizant of and, and just continue to meditate on these. First Peter 5.10. The God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. All right, so you have to focus on a couple things. The one who called you to eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little bit because that suffering is very important to to test you and to strengthen you. After that period, he will restore you himself and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Isaiah 40, 30 through 31. Love this passage. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. 
And I'm telling you, there's times I come home after church meetings and I'm weary and I'm faint and I don't see any eagles. But the, but the promise is, the promise is that he will renew my strength. He will get me over that hump. He will get me in the bed, get me some rest, get some food in me, you know, maybe, maybe a Coke Zero or something, but he will, he will sustain me. God knows when to throw me a bone and he's good at knowing, he, he's good at throwing them. And because of that, I get renewed and I get re-strengthened. Jeremiah 29, 11. A lot of you probably have this one memorized. Anybody have it memorized, 29, 11? What is it? Yeah. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Got to know that one. He has plans to prosper you. I've heard many times people say, God just wants me to be in poverty. He just wants me to suffer. He wants me to struggle. He wants me to stay here and in perpetual humility for the rest of my life. No, it says right here, he wants to prosper you. He doesn't want to harm you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to train you and let you suffer. But it's all so that he can prosper you. Now, prosper does not always mean money. You might, you might have a funeral that's packed with thousands of people who are teary-eyed because you have left this, this, this earth, and you may think that you're poor. <laughs> God will teach it differently. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. This is another one God has to help me with because, you know, I love, I love our teenagers. I love our teenagers, my biological teenagers and the non-biological ones. I love them all. And, and sometimes, you know, I worry about them. You know, you haven't seen them in a while. You know, they might do something crazy, something stupid maybe. And you're like, Lord, what in the world's going on? He'll say, well, remember, you're the same way. But that's a different story. <laughs> but what it says is that he's already begun a work in them. Trust him. He will bring it to completion. The seeds have been planted. Trust him. He'll bring it to completion. You're ready to strangle your child? Trust him. He'll bring it to completion. He will do it. Don't strangle him yet. Let him do his job. He'll strangle him for you. <laughs> he will, and in different ways, he will. Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know that in all things, not some things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In all things, Psalm 3, 2 through 4, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you are a shield around me. You bestow glory on me, and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Many people have been in times where they cry, and they cry, and they pray, and they pray, and they'll say to me, and they'll probably say to you, God isn't listening to me. I haven't found any verses that support that mindset. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. Deuteronomy 31.6, 
Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, the enemy. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You've probably heard that before. John 10, 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, I've told you a couple weeks ago when it came to divorce, I heard people say divorce is an unforgivable sin. Uh, I'm sorry, it says right here. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. In James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Another huge one. 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. He says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Only a couple more. Malachi three ten. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. This is a cool one because what happens is is when you have money and there's needs in your family, you're going to trust in yourself. You're going to put your hope in yourself to make that money last. But when you give your tithe, remember in the Bible, it never says give your tithe. It says bring your tithe. Because you're not doing God a favor, you're giving back to him. You're returning to him what's his. So you bring your tithe to him, and then he takes over because you have illustrated you put your hope in him, even with your finances. And so then he comes and he says, I will throw open the floodgates of heaven. I'll pour out more blessing on you than you know what to do with. But you have to return my tithe to me first. In Philippians 4.19, it says, And my God will meet all of your needs according... Oh, I just forgot the last couple words. According to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So how is God going to fulfill all of these promises when he's way up there, he's holy, righteous, and just, and we're down here, we're wounded, we're broken, we're sinful? Easy. He sends his only son, his, his only begotten son into this world. Another huge promise, John three sixteen. He sends his only son into this world to die on a cross for your sins, to take your burdens upon himself. He takes it to the grave. Three days later, he rises from the dead. He gives you eternal life if you will just have faith in him, put your hope in him, and then just sit back and have peace because Christ has taken your shame from you. He's taken your pain from you. Well, that's like poetry right there, isn't it? But that's what Christ does. He is the extension of God. He's the answer to our prayers. And so that's why in Christmas time, we celebrate for a whole week the fact that Christ is our hope. And we need nothing else but him. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you again for being here among us. We pray that you'll continue to help us to drive home these promises into our heads and our hearts. 
Through prayer, Lord, speak to us, train us, teach us, mold us and shape us so that we can have peace in our lives. Because right now, Lord, that peace is uh, it's evaporating. If we hold on to it at all, Lord, it's just for a few seconds. We need your help. We need your grace. Please, Lord, help us to see things the way you do. Help us to trust you. In Christ we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing, if you'd like anybody to pray with you, I'd be more than happy to do it. Just come up and let me know.